Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleon Assist. We're back, folks. Not just in a temporary, superficial kind of way. We are properly back. I want to say a big thank you to all of you who've kept listening in the interim. It's been really humbling to keep an eye on the download statistics and see that day on day people are continuing to tune in in droves. In the past month, the figures have never dropped below 200 a day, despite me not pushing content out in anything like the regularity that you've become accustomed to. The fact that around the world you are still supporting the channel with your likes, with your incredibly generous reviews, with the retweets in in so many forms means a huge amount to me as I've been working out what the future holds. I still don't have a lot of certainty on many issues, but things have cleared. Um, Certain things are, are now in place and I'm incredibly excited to be back in front of the microphone and broadcasting to you all. So there's a lot that's going to be incoming over the next few weeks, so hold on to your hats. Episodes on Napoleon's police state. Uh, We've got another Marshalls episode coming up with Rachel Stark. Popular opinion in Britain, France and the Netherlands. Kutuzov and much more besides. To say nothing of that long-awaited episode, or series of episodes rather, on the War of 1812 month, which will happen. It's just taking a little bit longer than planned. Sorry about that. Now, today, I'm going to bring you not what I'd originally planned to do. I haven't made any secret of the fact, because I endlessly harp on about it, that I'm hugely proud to have been key uh, in terms of setting up the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wargraves charity. And of course, again, as I am forever blabbing about, we held the War and Peace in the Age of Napoleon conference over the 8th to the 10th of September. Now, clearly, we were overtaken by events uh, following the sad news of the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. 
whether you're a royalist or a republican i think it's not a, a stretch to acknowledge that her majesty was a remarkable individual who made a pledge to devote her life to the service of the nation and she stuck by that pledge and even if you don't like the queen and even if you don't like the monarchy um there's a point to be acknowledged that um the nation has lost its its figurehead um and so it's been a difficult time for many um as you can imagine from a practical level when we were um hosting the war and peace conference we got the news um as we were holding the charities agm and then about half an hour later we got news that the national army museum which was where we were holding the event was closing because it was being requisitioned by the Ministry of Defence. Why does all of that matter in terms of the podcast? Well, the thing that I was planning to do was to bring you a kind of synopsis of lots of different, very exciting uh, individuals, speakers who are up-and-coming talents or well-established names within the Napoleonic business and create a kind of montage of mini-interviews about their thoughts on where Napoleonic history was and all the rest of it. Now, because we lost the venue, people weren't allowed to turn up. So that kind of became not possible. So instead, what I'm going to give you is just a little bit of a taster of one of the papers that was presented there. Inevitably, because of copyright and so on and so forth, it's my paper. So you will not be surprised to hear that a crime and punishment rant is incoming. But hopefully you'll find it uh, an interesting crime and punishment rant. And certainly it's a, a topic that is troubling, but I think worth exploring um one aside to make if you would like to catch up on the uh, papers that were eventually presented at the war and peace conference we transitioned everything online at 12 hours notice it nearly killed myself and sam jolly my co-organizer of the event to make it happen overnight but we managed it um and we did record the papers and those will be made available to anyone who bought tickets for the conference but also will make them available to the public for a fee um, so if you'd like to know more about that, please email nrwgcharity at gmail.com and we can keep you posted on developments. There's a huge amount of content there, some 30 hours. So it's taking quite a long time for me to go through it all and edit it, even as somebody who's got a fair few podcasts under their belt. So we will get there. Um, but if you'd like to know more, you know where to go for more information. Enough waffling from me. Here comes uh, what was effectively my paper. It's entitled Blind Eyes and Prejudice and looks at attitudes towards sexual misconduct in Wellington's army during the Napoleonic Wars. This talk comes with a fairly predictable content advisory. This is a grim topic and as I've said already it's an important one. Over the course of the next half hour or so I am going to be discussing a variety of crimes that fall under the umbrella of sexual misconduct in varying levels of detail. So this talk will contain references to bestiality, child abuse, rape, as well as derogatory attitudes towards women and on homosexuality, as they are presented in the sources and as were commonplace during the period. Those attitudes shouldn't necessarily surprise us, but nonetheless, they are not particularly pleasant to hear in more enlightened times. Crime and punishment in the British Army and the way in which military law worked is something that we are only just beginning to understand in its fullest and truest extent. For more on this, flick back through the Napoleon Assist back catalogue, you'll hear various rants on things like desertion and, and so on and so forth. A lot of focus until very recently 
has gone into the big headline figures. The floggings, not least the considerable number of lashes that a military court could issue in a sentence, has been the dominant feature of discussions on discipline. More recently, that work has, thankfully, begun to branch out. Ed Coss's brilliant All for the King shilling, I make no apologies for hailing it in the highest possible terms, considered the impact of nutritionally inadequate food supplies on troops' mentality of plundering, highlighting that they faced that stark choice between plunder for subsistence or die. Joseph Cozens has examined the notion of desertion as a means of withholding labour, and Ilya Berkovich has dispelled that notion of the excessively draconian Prussian officer during the Ancien Regime. Quite simply, if you wanted to command people, you couldn't beat them within an inch of their life, because in a battle situation, they'd turn around and they'd shoot you in the face. Now, coming off the back of my PhD thesis, in which... As you've heard many times before, I argued that the military justice system in the British Army constituted a pragmatic system of discretionary justice. In this talk, I want to use sexual crimes of varying forms as a case study to shed light on how military justice operated, the way in which it sought to, or actually rather didn't seek to provide restitution to the victim, and what this in turn indicates about where the military courts sat in terms of wider social attitudes and non-military legal practices towards these scenarios. We know that Napoleonic Wars was no different to any other conflict when it came to the prevalence of sexual assault. Michael Hughes has uncovered compelling evidence of a culture within Napoleon's Grande Armée that normalised sexual violence, with fireside songs pointing to soldiers conflating conquest of territory to what might be termed sexual conquest. The inevitable question, was there an equivalent in the British Army? I'll be honest, we don't know. Matilda Grieg points to a culture that equated virility with masculinity, whilst rescuing women from sexual violence was a heroic trope in soldiers' narratives. Now that, of course, isn't the same as a culture of sexualised violence. None of this necessarily means that it didn't exist, but that the evidence just isn't there to prove that it did. Although, if anybody's got in information that contradicts that, then I'd be very interested to hear more. We certainly know that there was what can be described euphemistically as a presumptuousness amongst some proportion of the officer corps, which, by today's standards, we would agree is tantamount to assault. The most well-known example of this is KGL Commissary August Schaumann. Two anecdotes really spring to mind when it comes to Schaumann. The first is an incident in which he describes how a group of officers encountered an older Portuguese lady and her very attractive younger daughter. The officers wouldn't let the couple pass until she had kissed each one of them in turn, and they made a show of forming a line and then doubling back to the end of the line when they'd received their kiss. The second case is far worse than the first. In Spain, he came across a young lady who had become separated from her family, and Schaumann sought to reunite them. That night, however, with the young woman complaining about the cold, Schaumann sought to, as he puts it, and I'm quoting here, warm her in the suitable way. Although she resisted me at first, she soon became very happy. Clearly you don't need me to outline what we're alluding to there. The presumptuousness of some officers is demonstrated equally clearly by a letter from Cornet Kinchant, written in 1815. He says, The women are very plain, 
it is with great difficulty that I make them understand my wants. Yes, he wrote, my wants in this letter. I asked a girl one day if she would let me manoeuvre her. She answered, your, your, little thinking from her reply, but she understood and was willing. I proceeded to action, when, lo, to my astonishment, she kicked up such a row in Dutch that I've never before heard, and ran away as fast as she could. As Beatrice de Graaf commented uh, in the midst of hearing this paper, just shows that you really shouldn't mess with Dutch women. These are instances that are by no means unique, uh, but there are more infamous cases than this when it comes to the conduct of the British Army as a whole during the Peninsular War. Most notoriously, of course, the sacking of Badahoff. Memoirs from the likes of Edward Costello give strong allusions to the plight of women who were still inside Badahoff when it was captured. For those of you who aren't familiar, one that um, will be perhaps well known to those who've read uh, Costello's memoir a couple of times is the case of an elderly gentleman who uh, has his house effectively torn apart by um, already very drunk British soldiers. They call for more wine. He claims that he hasn't got any. And in the process of not believing him, the soldiers start to literally tear the place apart. Unfortunately, in the process, they find the old guy's wife, but also uh, his two young daughters. And Costello becomes rather coy in terms of saying quite what happened next, um, but does refer to them as being ill-treated. That's a term that can cover anything from punching somebody through to sexual assault um, and and says that their, their plight can well be imagined. Now, the case of Badahoff brings us to the first key question about military law. What was actually done about it? Well, I've spoken on Badahoff before. I won't repeat and bore you on the details, but the answer for Badahoff is nothing. Um, there's no indication of anyone being prosecuted in any tier of military court for what happened there, regardless of what the crime was. doesn't matter if it was plunder, murder or rape. Nobody was tried for Theodore Rodrigo or for Badahoff. And that attitude is actually reflected elsewhere in the military courts when it comes to sexual assault. So let's start with some stats. As, again, apologies, I've probably bored you with this, but... Uh, as, as many of you will know, during my PhD, I put together a database. It has 9,227 cases in it, and they shed light on the Army's prosecution priorities and its punishment practices. Now, foremost among those, as we've discussed, is desertion. That's 42% of all trials, despite desertion rates being nothing like as serious a problem as plundering, which accounted for 14% of trials. When you break them down by charges, there are 43 individuals tried for cases of a sexual nature. Three of those are bestiality, two are paedophilia, 14 are for rape, that's 0.15 of a percent of all trials, which will in no way be indicative of the number of offences, of course. And bizarrely, 24 are for homosexuality. Yes, you've heard that right. The army took the act of sodomy, or falsely accusing someone of being homosexual, almost twice as seriously as it did sexual assault. Now, I'll come back to the homosexuality uh, trials and the numbers in a bit. For the moment, I want to focus on punishments for sexual assault. In essence, those punishments are almost derisory. The British Army made extensive use of the lash. It issued almost two million lashes 
across the cases in my database. The legal maximum of a general court-martial was 1,500 lashes, though the army never inflicted more than 1,200 in this period. Plunder was often punished by 800 to 1,000 lashes, or even execution. Losing equipment could result in fines and two to 300 lashes. So take all of that as your context. In relation to rape, we're looking at five individuals flogged, ranging from 300 to 800 lashes, one for solitary confinement, one being hanged, one reprimanded, they were an officer, there's a two-tier punishment system going on here, which means that the officers do not receive things like floggings, and six of them were acquitted. Now, the acquittal rates shouldn't particularly surprise us, um, but what we effectively have here is a situation where property crimes are being treated more severely than what we might term crimes of the body. Now, that's not unique to the armed forces during this period. Rape was rarely tried in European society in the long 18th century. Georges Vigorello wrote a troubling read, but nonetheless an important book called The History of Rape, in which he's argued that prosecutions for rape were a rare occurrence due to the victim's reluctance to report crimes, that's an issue that continues to this day, and the difficulty of proving that a rape had taken place. At the heart of this problem were contemporary attitudes towards women, which simultaneously considered them to be more vulnerable, and yet saw women who were unable to fight off their attackers as potentially promiscuous. Again, to a slightly lesser extent, a problem that persists to this day. A failure to cry for help, for example, was considered to be a serious weakness in any non-military sexual assault case. Historian of non-military Lord John Beattie points to the fact that those who came forward to report rapes and pursue prosecutions opened themselves up to publicity and the embarrassment and pain of having to prove in court that the attack that had taken place, first of all, and that that attack was indeed a rape, you know, that the accused had had carnal knowledge of her quote, forcibly and against her will. Scholars have uncovered a multitude of indications of the challenges of securing rape prosecutions. BT highlights that part of the challenge in proving that the rape had actually been accomplished and that there had been penetration. This was even challenging in child abuse cases, staggeringly. Vigorello has pointed to the example of a teacher who in 1818 was convicted merely of indecent assault but not the rape of four small girls, despite a doctor's report testifying to the victim's absence of hymen. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. So what was it like in the military courtroom? The problem is that we don't have a huge amount to go on. Not only are there so few trials, we've covered that already, but there's a wider problem with surviving trial proceedings. The vast majority of those that survive relate to officers' trials, despite the fact that proportionately officer trials made 19% of the business of general courts martial. This means that in relation to sexual assault cases, only one survives. And yes, as you guessed, it's the only officer trial that exists for this type of crime, and it only survives because it's an officer trial. So some details on this case, because it's nonetheless useful to try and pick out what we can from this without jumping to conclusions. In September 1810, Ensign William Fennell of the 8th West India Regiment was charged on two counts. Firstly, for having behaved in a scandalous manner, such as is unbecoming the character of a gentleman, in committing an assault on and attempting to violate the person of Mrs Eliza Raines in her husband's quarters during the months of July and August. And secondly, for behaving in a scandalous and infamous manner, such as is unbecoming the character of an officer, in falsely and maliciously traducing the character of Mrs Eliza Raines on or about the 25th day of August last. Now, the reason that I'm particularly interested in this set of proceedings is to try and get a sense of victim testimony from this. Mrs Raines described him grabbing her by the hand and trying to place her on his knee. She threatened to call for a servant he continued with his attempts regardless. She then called for the servant, telling them to go and get help. Fennell left, saying, Mrs Raines, I love you more than I can express to you. On another occasion, he tried to kiss her. She informed him that she'd tell her husband. He then didn't bother her again. The prosecutor explicitly asked if he tried to drag her to the bedroom. She denied it. And in cross-examination, she had to face questions from the prosecutor the president of the court, the board of judges judging, sorry, the board of officers judging the case, and Fennell himself. Um, so yes, she had to face her, uh, the man that she was accusing in court. She had to face her attacker. She said actually that she'd initially sought the advice of a friend who had advised her not to tell her husband, partly because of the consequences. Those consequences most likely being that there would be a duel as a result of that, uh, which would be difficult for her husband in terms of the implications for his career if he was caught, but also it could result in one or both of them ending up dead. Now, whilst this clearly isn't a rape case, it is clearly tantamount to assault, and the charges suggest a willingness to take this case seriously, perhaps in part, and this is supposition, because Mrs. Raines' husband was an officer. Raines was actually a really good witness. She gave precise and direct answers to the questions, and those elements of her account which could be substantiated by other witnesses turned out to be accurate, although bear in mind that a lot of this takes place in a room where there are only two people present, Raines and Fennell. Fennell's defence entirely conformed to the wider social tropes, placing the blame on the victim. He tried to portray Mrs. Raines as a woman of bad character, a prostitute, and accused her of having lived with a sergeant, and he brought forward people to testify to his own good character. 
The court wasn't particularly convinced, but it was quite reserved in its judgment. And I'm quoting the proceedings here. It said, The impropriety of Ensign Fennell's conduct towards Mrs. Raines amounts to an assault on her person, and they do therefore find him guilty of the first part of the first charge, viz. committing an assault on the person of Mrs. Raines, but acquit him of the second part of the first charge, viz. attempting to violate the person of Mrs. Raines. This was a legal thing. What Fennell had been accused of didn't actually amount to an act of violation in law, and so he couldn't be found guilty of it. And this is why Raines faced those questions about whether or not uh, Fennell was trying to drag her to the bedroom. They were trying to determine whether or not there was an attempt to go further than Fennell had actually been able to. Um, and the fact that Reigns didn't accuse him of any more meant that not only sh clearly she was, or presumably she was being truthful, um, but also it meant that Fennell couldn't be uh, prosecuted in, in a more serious way. And as a result, he was sentenced to a public reprimand that's the second least severe punishment the army could issue, bar a private reprimand. It's, it's the army's equivalent of a slap on the wrist, quite frankly. It's derisory. Mrs. Raines achieved nothing beyond the vindication of her name, which, admittedly, in this case, may have been enough. But Fennell was free to remain in the army and stay in the unit. It didn't have any significant impact on his wider career from an official perspective. It'd be harder to comment on how people viewed him within the regiment going forwards. There would no doubt have been gossip. The army, therefore, was not being attentive to the needs of the victim here. So let's move on to trials for homosexuality as a point of comparison. The, the first thing I want to emphasise is that actually homosexuality was not a crime, according to the documents that governed military law, that is, the Mutiny Act, and the Articles of War. It should not have been prosecuted. The only loophole that existed was Section 24, Article 2, and believe me, I do not expect you to just happen to know that off the top of your head, unless you're a sad individual like myself who's committed these to memory. But it states, but all crimes not capital, that's key there, not capital, and all disorders and neglects which officers and soldiers may be guilty of to the prejudice of good order and military discipline, though not specified in the said rules and articles, are to be taken in cognizance of by a general court-martial, according to the nature and degree of the offence, and to be punished at their discretion. Now there's a clincher here. Sodomy was a capital offence. Men were hanged for it by the military courts. So that stipulation doesn't apply. To put it another way, prosecution for homosexuality was an active choice, not a requirement by the military courts. When it came to the punishments issued, the results were mixed. Um, acquittal rates are almost exactly the same, to be honest with you. Flogging was slightly less common, but the floggings issued were far more severe. So what we have is three dismissals, four being shot or hanged. The case of uh, the individual being shot is because the the trial was exacerbated by um, a second charge relating to mutiny. Ten were acquitted, six were flogged, receiving 800 to 1,000 lashes, and then one received solitary confinement for two years. 
One of those acquittals is actually for a couple that were caught in the act, but it was found that one of them was so drunk that he didn't know what was happening. In other words, what we're looking at there is a case of rape, but it wasn't prosecuted as such, and there was no secondary trial. Again, we are, perhaps predictably, short on trial proceedings. There is only one of them, and this is the trial of Lieutenant von Conradi of the 3rd Ceylon Regiment. He was tried for a number of things, I won't read out all the charges, but the significant one in this circumstance is for, and I'm quoting here, and it's a long quote, Conduct scandalous, infamous, and unbecoming the character of an officer and a gentleman, in the following instance, viz. For having on, or about, the seventh day of March last, entered uninvited into the house of the collector of Matura, and then and there, attempting to place his hand on the naked bosom or neck of Henry Wright Esquire, assistant collector of Matura, who was there seated on a couch in an undress, and accompanying such an obscene action with the following disgusting, unnatural, and horrible observation addressed by him, the said Lieutenant von Conradi, to Mr. Wright, a fine white breast you have. I think you would make a very fine bugger, or words expressly to that effect. That is a direct quote, and notice the value-laden language there. Disgusting, unnatural, and horrible observation. This is, I, I can't emphasise enough, utterly, completely, totally, unbelievably out of character for the military courts, which were exceptionally precise in their phrasing, precisely because you had to be. Anything that amounted to an opinion in a charge could lead the trial to collapse, because you could convincingly argue that an act was perhaps not scandalous, or not unnatural, or not disgusting, or not horrible, and in the process the charge falls apart because you're trying to do something very precise within law. So describing Conradi's alleged conduct as disgusting, unnatural and horrible was a massive departure from the norm. I've seen cases where the um, the charge has been sent back even. Whole trials have been rerun because you have to frame charges in non-value-laden terms. Having said that, a number of trials for homosexuality were classified as, quote, unnatural behaviour or the, quote, unnatural act of sodomy. So this departure was, at the very least, consistent across the military courts. And the use of that term was also consistent throughout court testimony, which gives us a potential window into attitudes towards same-sex relationships within the army. The letters presented to the court made use of the term. Witnesses physically spoke those words. Now, all of that actually stands in contrast to some very compelling work that was done by Eamon O'Keefe, which points to a far more enlightened attitude towards homosexuality pervading wider society. I wouldn't say that this individual case necessarily contradicts that, and instead what I'd argue is that this is perhaps representative of a much wider phenomenon that we see of the army consistently bucking the wider social trend, something which is particularly apparent by the fact that the army doesn't embrace solitary confinement until 1817, some six years after the Judge Advocate General passed a change to the Mutiny Act in Parliament to make it legal for the courts to use that as an alternative to flogging. There's also a telling coda to this trial, actually, in general orders at Colombo, 
on the 13th of October 1813, Lieutenant General Brownrigg, whilst commenting on the trial, stated the following. The commander of the forces, after perusing this court-martial, and a letter accompanying it from the President, in the name of the court, considers it his duty strongly to deprecate that absence of correct feeling in society, and particularly in military society, which is manifested by these proceedings, and by which imputations of the most disgusting nature have been allowed to be matter of public conversation, without any attempt to bring them to a regular inquiry, by which the party might be exculpated, or, if guilty, consigned to merited degradation, and prevented from imposing himself upon society. Now set the homophobia to one side for a moment. Here you have a senior general saying, don't try these cases. Deal with it by other means. Now, inevitably, we have to ask why. Because the army doesn't want to be tainted by association. Military discipline can be invoked in a plethora of ways, not all of them needing the military courts to be involved. Derogatory attitudes may have seemingly been rife in the army, but that didn't necessarily mean that there was an active agenda to take these cases to court. Instead, those underhand techniques, those quiet avenues of forcing an individual from the army were deemed preferable in cases relating to homosexuality. So, to sum up, the military justice system had very limited interest in the needs of the victim. The court-martials were not courts of restitution, they were courts for the implementation of discipline. That, in turn, meant that whilst victims might be able to secure a conviction and see the perpetrator punished, this offered little benefit to them, something which may in turn help us to understand why prosecutions for plunder were comparatively low and why Wellington was so frustrated when civilians didn't come forward to testify at military courts for theft cases. When it came to sexual assault, the army showed limited interest. Cases were tried, but in such small numbers that the most meaningful conclusion that we can draw is that this crime was not high on the army's agenda. Given the social attitudes of the time towards the crime, the complexities around prosecution, and attitudes towards victims, that's perhaps unsurprising. If nothing else, particularly for Wellington's army during this period, the fact that the army continues to march on day by day means that by the time a victim can come to terms with the assault and make a decision on whether or not they wish to go forward with a prosecution, the army's gone. It's marched forwards, it's marched on, it's in another region, another town, another district, and the ability to bring the offender to justice therefore drops away sharply. Whilst a blind eye was largely turned towards sexual assault, the same cannot be said in a comparative uh, sense for same-sex relationships. Homophobic and derogatory attitudes were the norm, at least at an official level, and that shouldn't surprise us, particularly given the wider context of attitudes towards homosexuality in this period. But this is a notable exception to the carefully, the carefully implemented, legally focused norms that underpinned the military justice system. By and large, that system was remarkable for how successfully it worked and for its pragmatic outlook. This was the dark exception to that norm. So folks, there you have it. One paper, one little taster of a series of brilliant talks that were presented 
over the course of the War and Peace Conference. As I say, if you'd like to catch up on those and you didn't buy a conference ticket, don't stress, just drop an email to nrwgcharity at gmail.com. We'll contact you about how you can pay for access to the talks and for a small fee, uh, we will then make sure that you get access to the 30 hours of content that was um, presented over the course of the conference uh, so that you can enjoy hearing some of the latest findings and some really cutting-edge stuff that's coming out of the brains of researchers um, from of this period. So, there will be a huge amount of content incoming. In terms of a precise timeline, I'm not going to give you one other than to say that before the end of the month you will have another Marshalls episode and you will have one more besides. Now, it's a case of kind of dealer's choice, I'm afraid, in terms of whether or not you get the episode on Napoleon's secret police and police state, or whether you get something on popular opinion, or whether you get an interview on Kutuzov. But either way, you've got all of those in the offing very soon. November, we'll see... Uh, sorry, October, we're not even in uh, November yet. I, never mind. Uh, we'll leave that in the edit, just because it makes me look such a fool. So, um, November, we'll see the remainder of um, those three, whichever one doesn't materialise in the coming days, um, being released. And of course there'll be another Marshall episode. And then finally, thank heavens you all scream, um, War of Eighteen Twelve Month will finally happen. And around about that time, I will make a, a final decision in terms of the shape and the future of the Napoleon Assist. One thing that I've been particularly been looking at is whether or not I take it Sad or a large chunk of it, sadly, behind a paywall, um, so that there's one episode that's free a month, and then um, three others that go out in a month. But those are ex exclusively for those who sign up to be part of the Napoleonist community. Um, I am very conscious that the timing for such a move couldn't be much worse. It's not a done deal. Um, access would be pretty cheap. I'd be looking at something like two pounds a month um, because then you're getting you know all of that content for less than the price of a cup of coffee um, but there are decisions to be made on that that will come keep your ears to the ground um, and I will let you know when I do make a final decision and there will obviously be a, a big shake-up of the um, Patreon community there will be things like meetings um, for the fans um, more kind of social content more in active engagement with the brilliant patreon community that makes this possible i just want to end by saying a massive thank you to everybody who came to the war and peace conference um and to the charities agm it wasn't the event that we planned for you we had planned to bring everybody together in a kind of mass celebration of research the fact that the national army museum had to close when it was requisitioned by the mod meant that we couldn't do that but people responded magnificently to the occasion uh, helping people out in terms of access to the talks uh, joining us down the pub um, one of the treasurer the treasurer of the nrwgc basically flew from dublin to london for no other reason other than to give us a hug us being myself and my co-organizer sam jolly um, particular thanks to matilda pellucci at the National Army Museum for her help as we tried to scramble to find a solution to that problem and was really proactive in helping us find those solutions. Uh, and last but by no means least, to Sam herself, who 
was organising her first conference, and that was stressful enough, and then had the mother of all nightmares unfold um, when we lost the venue with 12 hours notice. And quite simply, I would have probably lost my sanity, and the event would certainly have crumbled into a heap if it hadn't been for her. So Sam, if you're listening, huge thank you for that. The Napoleonicist will return very soon. A big shout out as ever to my Patreon supporters, my Emperor level patrons, Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser and Todd and Laird Campbell. My Marshall patrons, Matt Bone, Marcus Cribb, Rachel Stark, Rory Muir, Liam Telfer, Ger Brown and Graham Swydenbank. My Commander patrons, John Haynes, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meakin, Michael Guest and Ross Flowers. And my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Noah Fink, Andrew Wright, David Maxwell, M. Duck, Antony Gumbau, Chris Pramus, Miles Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coughlin, Mark Trowbridge, Nick Overland, Stephen Coulson, Graham Goodwin, Graham Spicer and David Priest. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. Thank you for your patience as I go through this overhaul. And as always, thank you for listening. (laughs) 